0: Good evening, and welcome to the business of giving. I'm your host, Denver Frederick, and we have a very special show for you tonight with just a single guest. He is Jim Collins, the author of management classics such as Good to Great, Built to Last, and How the Mighty Fall. He has also carefully studied the social sector and believes that running a major company is easier and less complex than building a great social enterprise.
1: In business, You have these predefined definitions of success, Mm -hmm. return on invested capital, return on equity, return on assets, right? Cash flow metrics. They're widely accepted and they're easily measurable. And also, money in the business sector is both an input and an output. It's both a means to success and a measure of success and a fuel for success, right? But in the social sectors, money is not a definition of success, and it shouldn't be. Right. Money is an input, but not an output.
0: But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, July 14th. It was the hottest June globally in the history of the planet. This according to the European Union's Copernicus program, one of the agencies that tracks the Earth's temperature. A new study found that a massive reforestation effort could be a huge weapon in this climate fight. Americans produce three times the global average of waste, which includes plastic and food. And when it comes to recycling, America again lags behind other countries, only reusing 35% of solid waste. Germany is the most efficient country, recycling 68% of material. Drinking two glasses of fruit juice a day may increase the risk of cancer by more than 50%, a major study has found. The average wait time for a first-time appointment among all college counseling centers is about seven business days, this according to a new report. And finally... The number of people fleeing their countries reached a record high of 25.5 million in 2018. Only 16% of them were living in rich countries, according to the annual report by the UN's High Commissioner for Refugees. Poorer countries are instead bearing the brunt of the glowing global refugee crisis. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Jim Collins right after this.
2: Well, my husband is a retired sergeant from the Air
3: Force. Well, he's was in the Army for 14 years and an MP.
2: Twenty-three million veterans. They're heroes who need our help.
3: Well, I'm here because my daughter has had her third surgery for cancer. We've had some difficulties, so we're here quite some time.
0: We're going on to three weeks.
2: When our heroes' families need help, they turn to Fisher House.
0: We learned about the Fisher House through the doctor and we were so grateful
2: because who has three weeks to be able to come and stay at a hotel. Fisher House is a safe free place to stay for families of wounded warriors and veterans receiving treatment at VA and military medical centers.
0: Fisher House is not only a home away
3: from home it was like family away from family. Thank you Fisher House.
2: Thank you Fisher House. Helping military and veterans families. Fisher House at FisherHouse.org Sometimes having family close by is a hero's best medicine. Technology can change lives. But underserved communities around the world have yet to experience all the benefits technology offers. Benetech is a nonprofit whose mission is to empower communities in need by creating scalable technology solutions. Their work has transformed how half a million people with disabilities access information, made it easier and safer for human rights defenders to document violations, and equipped environmental conservationists to protect ecosystems. Learn more by visiting benetech.org. Before you give to charity, go to CharityNavigator.org. Charity Navigator provides free ratings of thousands of America's largest charities, helping you get the most out of your charitable dollar. CharityNavigator.org, your guide to intelligent giving. Most teachers spend more than $500 of their own money on school supplies each year. That's because too many classrooms lack books, microscopes, art supplies, and even pencils. At DonorsChoose.org, you can help students and teachers get the resources they need for a successful education. Whether you support a field trip to a local museum, yoga mats for a health class, or technology to teach kids to code, you can join the 2 million individuals who've already made a difference in the classroom. Visit DonorsChoose.org to bring a classroom dream to life. Follow The Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash businessofgiving. And now, back to The Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer.
0: My next guest is the author, or the co-author, of six best-selling books that have sold, in total, more than 10 million copies. Forbes magazine selected him as one of the 100 greatest living business minds. And much to the good fortune of the social sector, he has spent considerable time researching and studying it. He is Jim Collins, an entrepreneurial professor, if you will, and the author of Good to Great, Good to Great in the Social Sectors, and his latest monograph, which is called Turning the Flywheel. Good evening, Jim, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Uh, it's really a, a pleasure to be here with you, Denver, on the show. Thank you. Uh, you operate a management lab in Boulder, Colorado and have carved out a really unique role in the world of business and social enterprise. Jim, how did you go from being a Stanford professor to this very distinctive calling?
1: Uh, It's a a, uh, kind of a circuitous journey, but uh, I was teaching entrepreneurship and small business uh, at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and I had had the great good fortune of mentors who had uh, given me the opportunity to, to do that at a relatively young age. I was uh, 30 when I began teaching there, and I had marvelous students. And I've just always really been driven by curiosity and wanting to pursue really big questions, such as you know, what makes a great company or a great organization tick, uh, what makes them built to last. And those kinds of questions uh, would, would need to best be answered in really big multi-year research projects. And so while I was getting started at Stanford, and Jerry Porus, who was a great mentor, Mm -hmm. gave me this marvelous research method that we developed together where we look at kind of match pairs of organizations, same situations, but different results, and asking what was different, eventually I came to the conclusion that I wanted to pursue a path that was not unlike a lot of the entrepreneurs that I'd studied. I'd always used to say to my students, hey, you don't necessarily need to be at IBM to be in business, you could do your own. Mm-hmm. And one day my students were sort of saying, well, why do you need to be at a university to do really interesting research projects and to, uh, to teach? And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, that's a really interesting question. That's a really good question. Touche to them. (laughs) uh, Eventually, I decided to bet on my own research projects and step out and uh, go from being a a professor of entrepreneurship, if you will, to being an entrepreneurial professor on my own. Mm -hmm.
0: Let me pick up what you just said about Jerry Porras and the method, because unlike many other business thinkers, Jim, your work has really endured. And I talk to people, and they'll speak about good to great as if it was published yesterday and not nearly 20 years ago, and that's probably because the principles therein are timeless. So I'd be interested in learning a little bit more about that methodology and how you go about doing this work that leads to such enduring concepts.
1: Well, fabulous. I, I Actually, uh, uh, let me just take a quick moment on this because there is a method, and uh, Jerry Porras, who... Uh, was one of my great strokes of who luck. Uh, mm-hmm. I think luck comes in many forms, but who luck is one of the best. I uh, was a senior uh, professor when I was 30 years old, starting to teach at Stanford. And we teamed up together to ask the question what really separates those that go from startups to become enduring, great, visionary companies? And the question was, how would you study that? Mm -hmm. And there were two elements of it. The first was to realize that you can learn a lot from history, that you can find companies that became enduring great companies. You can take, say, Walt Disney and his garage, and then Go from his startup all the way up to becoming the Disney that we have today, uh, or you could do that with a 3M, or you could do that with any number of you know kinds of companies, and they were all once startups. So you study them over the course of history, just like you would study the history of the United States. Mm-hmm. And but then there was, and, and history is a great teacher because organizations evolve, right? There's no single slice of time. You have to look at it step by step. But then Jerry introduced this really important idea. He said, what we need to have is a control set. Now, in science, you would do double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials. Right. But you can't do that in management. But Jerry had the brilliant insight to say, we could use the method where you go back and say, at the birth of an industry, you essentially kind of have a randomized trial. Mm-hmm. You have pairs of companies that were in the same spot, same time, same opportunity, same resources, same moment in history, and then one became great, and the other did not, coming off of the same kind of circumstances, almost like twin studies. Yeah. And Jerry said, if we then not just look at what the successful ones share in common, but what they share in common that is different from the comparison set, that didn't become great coming off the same circumstances, and you really focus on what was different, not just what did the successful share in common, you will then see what the differentiating principles are that separate the enduring great from the others. And the key was what Jerry really pushed us to do early on was to say we're not going to look for best practices of the moment. Mm-hmm. We are going to look for enduring principles that will always be true, and it turns out they're not even business principles, because if you're studying great companies to not great companies, companies drops out, and what you're really looking at is great versus not great. So when we talk about level five leadership, or we talk about preserve the core, stimulate progress, we talk about the flywheel, those are not business ideas. Those are greatness ideas, which is why they migrated to the social sectors.
0: Fascinating. And I guess the reason you did study companies is not because they were companies, is because there was data there that you were exactly able to compare.
1: right. So my own self-perception is that while many in the world would see me as a business thinker or a business writer, I never saw myself that way. I saw myself as somebody who wanted to understand what would separate a truly great and then potentially enduring enterprise of any type, Mm -hmm. business or non-business. And I needed a way to study it. And the beauty of business is, by using that kind of match-pair method, is amazing amounts of data. You can get balance sheets, income statements, proxy reports, going for... 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and it's all normalized to certain types of reporting standards, so you have marvelous amounts of very good data from which to draw your conclusions.
0: Transcripts of conference calls uh, with investors, everything in the world. Exactly, exactly, and that's why the work takes
1: so long. People often ask, why does it take six years to do a research project? And the reason is because you have to study everything from inception over the course of decades, and you read everything that's ever been published by or about the company, and uh, and that just gives you, it's, it's, it's massive. I mean, it can take three or four months just to process one case study of yeah. working virtually full-time. Yeah,
0: but that, of course, is one of the reasons your work is so enduring and so relevant, even as the world around us has uh, apparently changed and evolved. Well, after you wrote Good to Great, you subsequently came out with a monograph titled Good to Great and the Social Sectors. Now, why did you believe that a separate monograph was needed for the social sector?
1: So, Denver, this this was a kind of a surprise how it came about. It was a surprise to me. So after Good to Great, which came after Built to Last, so there was Built to Last and then there was Good to Great, and mm-hmm. we had these two pieces of work out there and they had powerful principles within them. Uh, We noticed something fascinating at our research lab in Boulder. Our incoming correspondence increasingly was coming from non-business. We were getting uh, emails and questions coming from symphony orchestras and K-12 schools and museums and healthcare systems and uh, people in philanthropy. And uh, they, they came first by saying that they'd read the material and found it powerful. And I concluded that somewhere between 30 and 50% of the readership of good to great came from non-business. So that was point one. But Mm -hmm. then the second was they kept asking questions. They believed in the principles, level five, first two, some of the things we'll talk about. But they said, we really want to know, Jim, what you think is how those principles might apply in a different way when you step into the different dynamics of the social sectors. So I thought, I'm going to take that on, I'll just share with you something interesting. When I first went in to do it, I wrote an entire monograph on Good to Great in the Social Sectors, spent an entire year on it, sent it out to critical readers, many of whom were in the social sectors, and the feedback that came back, because I listened very closely to people, was I needed to throw it out and start over. Oh, wow. And I literally threw out the entire thing and started over. Why did they say that? Because I made a mistake in the first version. And later, of course, in the, the later version, really, really uh, uh, came from a different view. I came at it with uh, thinking too much that, like a business person. Mm. I, and, and one of the things I learned early on was you have to come, if you come, if your primary grounding originally was in the world of, of like teaching at a business school, uh, working with companies and so forth, you need to come to the social sectors not with a sense of that you know. You need to come with a tremendous sense of humility that you don't know. And then there was another thing that I learned from them, which is business is the easy case. Business is the easy case. Running a major company is an order of magnitude easier and less complex than building a great social sector enterprise.
0: Why is that? And
1: I didn't understand that. And then once they taught me, I need to go back and really think, how is it different? How is it harder? How is it harder? Well, there's multiple ways uh, that it's harder. So let's, let's hit a couple of them. One is, think about this in business you have these predefined definitions of success Mm -hmm. return on invested capital return on equity return on assets right cash flow metrics they're widely accepted and they're easily measurable and also money in the business sector is both an input and an output it's both a means to success and a measure of success and a fuel for success right but in the social sectors Money is not a definition of success, and it shouldn't be. Right. Money is an input, but not an output. So then if you're running a symphony orchestra, as, as, as my friend Tom Morris was teaching me about the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra when he was there, you have to be very rigorous in thinking, what does it mean for us to know that we are doing better? Mm-hmm. And if we just measure that in ticket sales, we're missing the point. Are we playing a more beautiful Mahler symphony? How would we know? Are we are able to take on a wider range of the repertoire? Are we able to bring people in to not just hear a great Beethoven Symphony Three, which, of course, still will give you goosebumps, <laughs> but can, will people also take on difficult, dissonant 20th century music? Will they sit for a 12-tone? And will they do it in a way where they walk away saying, thank you so much for exposing me to a musical experience that's challenging?
3: Yeah, is
1: that You have to think those are definitions of progress and success and results. And you have to think very hard about what that is that's a different level of thinking than do we simply have a higher return on invested capital.
0: Yeah, and your subhead to that monograph was Why Business Thinking is Not the Answer, which has to make it my favorite subtitle of any book that I've ever encountered, because, you know, I hear that all the time. Uh, You need to run these organizations more like a business. And I think we found out a little bit that it's just not that easy, and perhaps, you know, we have some evidence of that from some of the Silicon Valley guys who are going to fix education, and try to intervene in a way which was much more like a business, and really hit some walls, and recognize it's just not that simple, it's a little bit more complex.
1: Well, one thing that, that the reason I put that subtitle on there about why business thinking is not the answer is that, first of all, that was a lesson I had to really learn, Mm -hmm. uh, and why it took me a whole second year to rewrite the monograph through the lens of why business thinking is not the answer and 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 what i what i really uh, and i want to thank my critical readers for really basically making me really embrace that and see it but but what i also came to see is this think about it this way most businesses are average mm-hmm. by definition right most businesses are average businesses they're not great yeah and so if you just took the practices of average businesses and ported them to the social sectors all you're doing is exporting the practices of averageness. Why would you want to do that? <laughs> so the real question is not business versus social. That's, a, that's an unfortunate frame. Rather, the key difference is great versus good, great versus not great, great versus mediocre. So when you talk about the principle of level five leadership or the principle of a culture of discipline. A culture of discipline is not a principle of business. It is a principle of greatness. And a great company will have a culture of discipline. But so will a great hospital really getting disciplined about how do we know at lowering costs and increasing patient outcomes, we're doing that in an increasingly disciplined way. And and you will find a culture of discipline in any great kind of organization, business or non-business. And you won't find it in a mediocre one, business or non-business.
0: That is a wonderful distinction. Let me ask you about built to last in the context of legacy organizations in the social sector. And, you know, I've had an opportunity to speak to some of the CEOs of organizations that are 75 and 100 and 150 years old and even have gone to visit their offices, and I see some that are really embracing change and are moving along quite nicely as the environment and the world around them changes. and others that just seem to be stuck. they just uh, won't make the changes that they need or or they can't. What is the difference between an organization that can do that and one that is just paralyzed?
1: So so first, just for uh, for folks who like to go back and find some of your shows, I think two really great examples of that in your, uh, in your show, uh, that uh, this very conversation came up of folks who were doing this well uh, were, I believe it's Dan Weiss of the Metropolitan uh, mm-hmm. Museum and Simon Woods of Los Angeles, Phil. Yeah. I, and in both of those cases, uh, they were talking about one of the key principles that. Um, Uh, they were using their own words, but essentially what we found in Built to Last. So Built to Last asked the question, what separates a truly visionary organization, a truly great organization, not just over the course of one leadership cycle or, you know, a single decade, but multiple decades, uh, through multiple generations of leaders and multiple generations of societal change, technological change, and so forth. And, and after six years of research, Um, we essentially distilled it down to uh, a couple of key principles and the core key principle is this idea called preserve the core Mm -hmm. and stimulate progress and as I was listening to both of those shows I was really struck by they are really talking about preserve the core stimulate progress and you have to do both so one side is you have a core set of values and a core reason for being. You know, we're going we're gonna to put music in people's ears that's going to transform their emotions in their brain. Uh, we're going to uh, uh, allow everybody to have an experience of some of the most extraordinary art in the world that could transform uh, their view of everything, right? You have that sort of core sense and the principles that you live by that you will never change. That's preserve the core. But over the course of decades to centuries, right, the world changes. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to the other side, which is all about stimulate progress. It's a big genius of the ant. Preserve the core on one side. Stimulate progress means, well, we need to be thinking about, I remember uh, Simon talking about we need to think about what kinds of people do we have in the orchestra, what kinds of music do we play, how do we uh, connect in with uh, current types of technology, all these types of things. That's all about stimulating progress. And the ones that do it well over time are living constantly in the, in, the, in the genius of the end of preserve the core and stimulate progress. Here's the big point. People confuse core values and core purpose with operating practices. And what you have to do is to separate those. So let's take the world of academia. Mm-hmm. There's a core value of intellectual freedom of inquiry. That should never change. That's preserve the core. But there's a practice of academic tenure, which is you can't get fired for what you think. Well, that's a practice. And now if someday it turned out that the practice was no longer helpful, you have to be able to say, no, we're going to change the practice and we're going to keep the core value So as these storied organizations, great museums, great orchestras, uh, great universities, uh, great foundations evolve, they need to always be able to say we need to be very clear what are the values and what are merely the practices. And they may look like sacred practices, but they are still
0: practices, and therefore they can change. And that is the genius of the end, because I think so many folks live with preserve the core, or stimulate process. Exactly right. And And the whole key to the concept is preserve the
1: core ferociously, fanatically, (laughs) intensely, right, passionately, and at the same time, all the time, relentlessly, passionately, energetically stimulate
0: progress, both, every day, all the time. So well said. You know, another recent focus in the sector has been making big bets for social change. And I think folks don't want to mitigate a problem anymore, but they want to really solve it. And this has been promoted by the likes of Bridgman and the MacArthur Foundation. How should a social sector organization and so importantly, a donor go about making an intelligent big bet?
1: So uh you know one of the things that that we've learned in our research, and this is something that my colleague Morton Hansen and I uh found in in uh, what became the book uh, Great by Choice, where we were looking at who does well in really turbulent and disruptive environments uh and, and one of the things that uh that we found is this thing we call bullets and cannonballs, and mm-hmm. the idea that you you fire bullets, which are small calibrated shots. Like if you had a ship bearing down on you, uh, you, you then, uh, you, you know, you take a shot at the ship with a bullet, and it misses, but you reset again, and you fire another bullet, and it misses, and then you recalibrate, and then ping, you hear the side of the ship. And then you take your gunpowder, and you put it in a big cannonball, mm-hmm. and you fire the cannonball on the, on the ter- calibrated line of sight. And what we found with a, a, a lot of... Uh, companies that struggled and failed, is they fired uncalibrated cannonballs, right? And they just splashed in the water, and then they were out of gunpowder, and they were in trouble. Or they didn't fire enough bullets to find new things that would work, that would allow them to fire the cannonball. And what we found, a real punchline in our work, and this is going to sound like heresy, I don't mean it to, but we did not find that just being innovative, more innovative, separated the great companies from the others. That, that we did not find. Everybody innovated. What we found was it was the ability to scale empirically proven innovations. The ability to calibrate with a bullet and then to scale it into a cannonball is what better separated the great winners than just the pure amount of innovation. So now let's take that over to the social sector. Mm-hmm. What we have, if, if you... the if you think of all the experiments that are happening out there, say what's happening when somebody does something really great in a school, uh, somebody does something really great in a small museum, somebody does something really interesting, at, like the Ojai Music Festival. Then the question is, how do you take that successful bullet and then scale it into a national cannonball? Ah. That, I think, is the challenge that the social sectors, in my view, uh, and maybe many others, uh, has not yet done as well uh, as you can day, say do inside a given organization. And inside a company, inside an organization, it's easy to do. When you step outside into an entire sector, uh, it becomes much more difficult. And when we I'd like to maybe even also suggest that there's a really critical step. We're, we got this thing we just have, the the turning the flywheel monograph. You can build a flywheel inside your own organization, and we can talk about that for a minute but as my friend Kim Smith from uh, New School Venture Fund put it, but in the social sectors, there's also this thing called the Uber flywheel, <laughs> which is the flywheel of an entire movement, the flywheel of an entire sector. And somehow, how do you go from a flywheel that works well with a single organization into building the Uber flywheel of, say, all of education or all of the arts or all of homeless questions that transition is enormously difficult and is still, I think, one of the opportunities for people to solve that problem. I don't think it's been solved all that well yet.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one of the great distinctions you make between the business sector and the social sector. In the business, you're supposed to compete and try to Correct. beat the other guys, where in the social sector you're trying to solve a problem that affects thousands, if not millions of people. Well, let's turn to uh, that new monograph, Turning the Flywheel, what a great image, Jim. Uh, describe it for us. So, so
1: the, the flywheel principle came uh, from, from good to great, right. and, uh, and the idea is, is this, is that if you really study how a good-to-great transition happens, looking in from the outside, it can look like it was this instantaneous breakthrough and something leapt from good to great, and there it was. Wow. <laughs> Overnight. Uh-huh. But if you really study how it actually happens, it's like turning a giant heavy flywheel. You start pushing in an intelligent and consistent direction, and after a lot of effort, you get one giant, slow, creaky turn. And then you get, you stay in that direction, and you eventually get two turns. And you keep pushing, and you get four turns, and you keep pushing, and you get eight, and 16, and 32, mm-hmm. and 100, and 1,000, and 10,000, and then a million, and that flywheel's got all this cumulative momentum. Whoosh, around it goes, and boom, there's this breakthrough. And if you were to look at it and say, well, wait a minute, what was the one big push that made it go? It's kind of a nonsense question, because it's been push upon push, creating cumulative effect over time. That's the basic flywheel principle, is you need to come at it as a flywheel, not an event.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to talk about a couple of examples in the social sector, but I think a wonderful way to describe it and something that all listeners can uh, relate to and the company that you've worked with is Amazon. Why don't you descri- des- describe to us the design of their flywheel? Yeah, so
1: after after Good to Great uh, was published, just right after it was published, I was asked to go up to uh, Amazon in Seattle in 2001. It was yeah. the middle of the wake of the dot-com bust. The
0: dark ages. And,
1: and I met with the board and and, uh, uh, and the executive team and so forth, and all I did was teach the ideas. I can't really take credit for in any way for their great flywheel, because what they did was they took that flywheel principle that came from good to great, and they said, we're going to make the flywheel our, our own. That's the wonderful thing about great students, is they can take what you teach and make it even better, yep. and Amazon did. And so this is where the turning the flywheel monograph kind of got its start was how amazon took the principle and really extended it so what they did was they said you need to know how your flywheel turns think about it this way here you go it starts think of it as a circle goes around and each component drives the next component so top of the flywheel lower prices on more offerings Mm -hmm. right and if you do that that's going to increase customer visits to the amazon site and if you do that then that's going to get attract third-party sellers And then if you do that, that's going to allow you to extend the store and expand distribution. And if you do that, you're going to grow revenues per fixed costs. And if you do that, that's going to allow you to lower prices on more stuff, which allows you to increase customer visits, attract third-party sellers, expand the store, extend distribution, grow revenues per fixed costs, and around yet again. And if you think about what Amazon has done over the last two decades, it is in many ways – building that flywheel. Mm-hmm. And notice it's not a single event. It's not a single moment. It's not a single aha. It is a massive cumulative momentum machine.
0: Yeah, what I did notice, too, is that there is an incredible underlying logic to it all because every one of those things you said made the next step almost inevitable.
1: Exactly. That's the key is a flywheel is not, and this is what something people really need to grasp and part of why... I wrote this new monograph because I found people working with a flywheel, but not getting it right. So I wanted to help them get it right. And uh, essentially, a flywheel is not a list of aspirations drawn as a circle, or yeah, a list right. of action steps drawn as a circle. It's capturing the underlying logic of momentum that if we do A, then that's going to inevitably lead to B. And if we do B really well, it will inevitably lead to C, and around back to the top. And if you have somewhere between four and six components that are reinforced like that, and you do them really well and you understand that
0: architecture, it can create tremendous momentum. For sure. Well, let's turn to the social sector and one of the most admired healthcare institutions in the world is the Cleveland Clinic. You include that in your book. Walk us through their flywheel.
1: So uh, the Cleveland Clinic is is a marvelous example uh, of a flywheel. And it goes all the way back to uh, the early part of the 20th century, when some physicians went off to World War One, and what they were struck by is the collaborative nature of dealing with casualties on the battlefield. Right? You, when people come in off the battlefield, you don't say, "Oh, that's not my specialty," or "What's my bonus going to be on this?" or "What's my reimbursement rate?" Like, you want to save lives and you want to get people back to the people that they love, right? And everybody would unify together to 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 do as to get the to get the job done, and they came back and they said, "We want to create a healthcare organization," uh, and they were from Cleveland mm-hmm. that captures that same spirit. And so they built this thing where they said, "We need we need physicians." who are going to be ones who can work collaboratively, who aren't going to be worried about what their reimbursement rate is or any of that. They want to join the cause of we're going to do great medical work together collaboratively to get stuff done. So their will starts with get the right medical professionals, right? It's get the people who can do that. And if we get the right uh, professionals, then that's going to allow us to create a culture of collaboration for patient-centered care that medical professionals who want to work together for the benefit of the patient will create that culture. And if we create that culture, then we can't help but work across specialties for the best health outcomes Mm because that's how they happen. And if we do that, well, then we can't help but attract patients who want to come here because we do that so well. And we're going to get them from all over the world. And if we do that, that's going to fuel our resource engine. Right? We're going to be able to fund this machine to do better work. And if we do that, then we can invest in the best facilities and research and getting more of the right people, which then brings us right back to the top of the flywheel, <laughs> fill the system with the right medical professionals, and drive that flywheel around. That flywheel, in some form or another, has been turning for 100
0: years. Yeah. So when I first heard about the flywheel, I initially thought this is for CEOs and those at the top of the organization, but that actually is not the case. And you give a wonderful example from a public school principal in Kansas. Now share that with us.
1: Oh, so so Denver, this is one of the most exciting things for me. So I've been doing this research on K-12 education uh, because I I share with Wendy Kopp this in just deep belief that as, as a kid in this country, the quality of your education by the time you're age 18 should have nothing to do with where you're born. And so I really wanted to study how leaders created great schools in difficult settings. And so I was, I was doing this research, and I came across uh, that the, a lot of them built flywheels inside their schools. And one of them that I put in, in the monograph is where elementary school, a public uh, elementary school in rural Kansas on a military base. And what, uh, what this School principal did Deb Gustafson. Mm-hmm. Right? She's been turning the supply wheel for now almost two decades. When she came in, the the kids were not reading at the levels that they needed to, and she just felt this sense of moral responsibility. You you and I uh, both admire uh, Michael J. Fox and how he took on the Parkinson's uh, challenge of, like, I have a moral responsibility to do something, not just to deal with it myself, but to help others, right? Mm -hmm. And she felt this moral sense of responsibility that, no, the kids have got to get their reading by grade three, otherwise we have failed them. The kids haven't failed, we will have failed. And so, but then she said, How am I going to do this in this rural military base area where I've got a lot of turnover? I don't have access to lots of talent. And so she said, My flywheel is going to key off of one thing. I can't get enough experienced teachers, but I can find passionate young teachers. Mm-hmm. So she says, Start on my flywheel, I want to select teachers who are infused with passion. And if they're infused with passion, they're going to want to learn from others in the building who already know how to teach. So that's going to allow us to build these collaborative improvement teams. And if you've got those collaborative improvement teams working really well, then that's going to drive them to say, how are we doing? And we're going to assess our student progress early and often. And if we do that, and we really do it student by student, we're eventually going to turn that into achieving learning every single kid. And then if we do that, that's going to enhance our reputation as a school and is a great place to teach. Mm -hmm. And if we enhance our reputation as a great place to teach, that's going to allow more people coming from places like Kansas State University who are going to want to start their teaching career to say, I want to go there because that's got a great reputation as a great place to teach. We will replenish the passionate teacher pipeline and then select more of those teachers and around the flywheel we'll go. And here's the beauty. She didn't sit around and wait for, gosh, I'm going to wait for education reform to fix education. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right? She just said, I have a responsibility for my kids and my school, and I am going to do something about it. And she built a
0: flywheel. Yeah. And she's got incredible results uh, for those kids. She absolutely
1: did. She got those reading rates up from something in the 30s to pretty close to 100%, and she stayed there. She's been on this flywheel now for coming up on two decades.
0: So, let's say I'm with a nonprofit organization and I'm listening to you, and I'm really interested. question I would have is, where do I start the flywheel? How do I determine the starting point? How do you do that?
1: So uh, so
0: there's uh, it sort of
1: depends on where you are in the journey. yeah uh, but but basically, the flywheel is is should be a an empirical exercise, not a theoretical exercise. Mm-hmm. And so, what I always like to suggest people do is, uh, if, they, if they're not a startup, right, startup, then you basically maybe want to learn, just almost copy the best of a flywheel from someone else. But if you've got some experience with your folks, with your people, make a list of your significant successes of things that have been working. And then uh, that could be repeated. And then also make a list of disappointments, like what yeah. has not worked. Yeah. So you have your own sort of set of empirical experiences. And then if you say, well, okay, if we really look at this, uh, what what flywheel could best explain what actually works and what doesn't work? So you essentially build up from your successes and failures to then impute what the flywheel at its best actually is. But one of the really critical questions you always have to ask is where does the flywheel start, even though it repeats? Remember, Amazon started with lower prices. It's an economic flywheel. And uh, Cleveland Clinic and Ware Elementary started with getting the right people. Mm-hmm. Intel starts with making the right chips, right? Mm-hmm. It's about, uh, it's an innovation flywheel. And so the key is then to say, what's really the essence of our flywheel? Is it going to be data? Is it going to be uh, uh, maybe knowledge about r- disease? Is it going to be a certain type of person? And one of the big debates to have with your team is, what should be the starting point of our flywheel, because it's both signaling and conceptual clarity, both. Mm
0: -hmm. Can you extend a flywheel?
1: Well, that's one of the wonderful things about flywheels, is that uh, a flywheel is not just a kind of a specific arena. It can be something that allows you to extend into new areas. So let's just go back to the Cleveland Clinic one I spoke about earlier. You know, Cleveland Clinic... Uh, started out, uh, it, you know, really became known for what it did in heart uh, and vascular, right? But as it began to expand and gain more capabilities, it began to move into, you know, other arenas of, of health delivery and, and, and health improvement and wellness and being and so forth as it began to extend. And here's the key. The underlying architecture of the flywheel, get the, get the right people in there, work in the collaborative environment, work across specialties, solve the patient problems, right? do it in a way that brings in the resource engine, et cetera. All that's still the same, but they've been able to extend, and they've even been able to extend outside of Cleveland to places like Abu Dhabi and other places because the flywheel remains intact, but you're able to expand based upon
0: that flywheel architecture. One last question about the flywheel. Can you have a personal flywheel, and if you can, what would yours be?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, it's it's very interesting uh, that that I I, I thought about this because people started to ask me what's my own flywheel, but (laughs) I have had one for a very long time. It goes all the way back to when I was 30. I'm 61, so I've been Mm -hmm. on this flywheel for about about 31 years. And uh, the flywheel begins, my flywheel begins – with curiosity. Mm-hmm. That's what really motivates me. I'm just a really curious person. And uh my flywheel uh the curiosity then inevitably leads me to want to ask big questions. And if I ask big questions then I have to want to answer them with rigorous research, right? I don't want to just have an opinion. I want to have research. And if I do rigorous research, that's going to lead to insights, like preserve the course, simulate progress, and level five leaders, and so forth, and be able to put those in a conceptual wrapping paper that people will grab them and then if I do that, then I can't help but want to uh, to share them, to teach them, mm-hmm. to disseminate them. Like our conversation right now, I love sharing the ideas. I can't <laughs> if we have them. I'm a teacher at heart. I want to share them. Yeah. And if I if I share them, well then that has impact on the world, and that impact on the world translates into ultimately being able to fund because. People will, will you know, support the work because they, they, you know, they, they bought a lot of books. But I never did this to sell books. I right. did this to answer questions. Mm-hmm. But the books then feed the next questions and the next piece of research, right? which then I channel right back in to doing the next set of good questions so that I can continue the flywheel of curiosity. Mine is all about questions, insights, and teaching.
0: Well, let me pick up on that because I love the curiosity and I love the questions. And it's no surprise that when you advise someone, you don't provide them with answers, but you're going to pepper them with questions, more like an executive coach, I think, than a consultant. And I believe that asking the right question has to be one of the more underappreciated skills in the world. Now, this certainly may not be one, but what makes for a good question?
1: Ooh, boy. (laughs) Uh, so, so there's a. First of all, m- I agree with you completely about about questions, and maybe just even zoom a, a step out on this about how profound it is to change from an answer orientation to a question mm-hmm. orientation. I, re- I share this story at the beginning of the social sector's monograph, but a profound moment in my life was when the the great thinker and wise man John Gardner, yeah. who had been Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare in the Johnson administration and founder of Common Cause. He was a senior emeritus professor down the hall from me at Stanford when I was 30. And one day, I was in his office, and he looked at me, and he said, Jim, it occurs to me you spend way too much time trying to be interesting. (laughs) Why don't you invest more time in being interested? It's one of those things where a great teacher changes your life in 30 seconds. And I walked away from that thinking, Wow, that I'm going to try to change that. And so, I think that was a place that activated the desire for questions. Like, be interested, mm-hmm. and interesting things will happen. Then over time, I learned, uh, I constantly refined the, que- uh, the the pursuit of questions, asking the right questions. And I think the essence of a really good question begins first with listening. Because you want to be really listening, and then you also want to be able to say, and by the way, it's more tiring. Here's an interesting little factoid. I've noticed that when I'm tired, if I'm sleep-deprived, for example, or exhausted or something, I will ask fewer questions, and I will say more things. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, because actually listening and asking questions is much harder than saying something. Yeah, And so I think the art of a good question first is you're really present. You're really listening. You're there with the other person or the other people. Then the second is a really good question is one where you don't know the answer when you ask it. Yeah. Because if you know, I mean, for for me, if I know, if I'm basically, um, if, if there isn't any real curiosity in the question, uh, then it's not really something where there's a, a real conversation. Now, some questions you ask to lead someone somewhere because you really want to get them to understand something. But sometimes you really want to say, like, can you help me understand that or tell me about this person or uh, I'm really curious what you learned from so-and-so. Right? Those are questions that open conversations. Yeah. And when I, when, I, um, when I meet someone... I always like to start with something to be interested about them. And what I found with that is conversation is always at its best if you're interested in them first, and then an interesting conversation
0: will happen. I agree. And, you know, active listening really means you're not thinking about what you're going to say next. Exactly. And it's also trusting that whatever question may come next, it will take care of itself. Through the act of exactly. listening, exactly. instead of having to be prepared for after he says this, I'm going here. Exactly,
1: and sometimes there's you know there's a, a when I prepare for what I call a lab session, I don't do consulting of any traditional sense. Right. But people will bring like an executive group or maybe gatherings of CEOs or whatever to Boulder, and we call them dialogue sessions because I basically ask questions, and uh, and and what I what I have found is that if you ask people really good questions, it accelerates the conversation and accelerates their insight. And sometimes you ask a question and then you don't say anything for 30 minutes. Yeah,
0: right. So, well, let me tell you something I'm interested in and that's how you communicate your ideas mm-hmm. and concepts with such vivid imagery. I mean, we have the hedgehog concept, uh, the 20-mile march, uh, time tellers versus clock builders, the flywheel effect, for goodness sake, uh, and others. It's a really a great way to teach and provide stickiness to these ideas. How did this get started with you, Jim, and where do you come up with these ideas?
1: Well, so, so the ideas first, just to be very clear, uh, I, I never confuse the communication of an idea with the discovery of an idea. Right. So the first thing is you, you've got to do your research or do your work so that the ideas that you're communicating are really grounded in something where you have confidence that what you're teaching, like preserve the course simulated progress or the flywheel effect or be a clock builder, do more clock building, less time telling, right? They have years of research mm-hmm. behind them. But then you have this interesting question, which is how do you get somebody to really engage with an idea? And this was something that, uh, that Joanne taught me. She had done some work on the question of which ideas tend to have impact more than others. And so you, can't, you have to have the ideas from the research, but she taught me about this thing about uh, wrapping and unwrapping ideas. Where mm-hmm. she said, look, uh, if, if I say to you, do you have leaders? Well, you'll say, well, yeah, we have leaders, but we don't even know if we're talking about the same thing. Yeah, if I right. say to you, do you have level five leaders? now you have to stop. Mm -hmm. Now I've given you a package, and that package is wrapped in this thing, the wrapping paper is Level 5 Leadership. And you have to now unwrap this and say, well, what is Level 5? And how's a 5 different than a 4? And what does that mean? What's the concept behind it? And then you unwrap it like unwrapping a gift. Yeah. And then you rewrap it, and now you have the idea. And that I learned from Joanne. She really taught me how to do that. And then the second thing is this. Um, I always think about what's the right conceptual vehicle for a concept. So sometimes a vehicle is like a stage process. When I studied how companies fall five stages of decline, right? Mm-hmm. It's a stage concept. But like preserve the core, stimulate progress, Jerry and I talked a long time. What kind of concept? It's a dialectic, like thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? It's a dialectic concept. Level five is like Maslow's hierarchy level one, level two, level three, level four, level five, and you move through the, st- uh, the, the progression. So, what I've learned is that you really have to always ask what's the right conceptual vessel, equation, analogy, dialectic, stage, hierarchy, Venn diagram, right? Could be a mathematical equation. What's the conceptual vehicle to, to best capture this concept? And then what's the wrapping paper that will help people engage with it?
0: And that takes creativity. So what stimulates your creativity? What kind of inputs? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Well, so part of it is I'm just kind of fanatic about uh, about creative hours. And uh, as people who know, we have this concept called the 20-mile march, which is you you set out like you're walking across the United States, and you you do you, know, you have to do at least 20 miles a day every day right and mm-hmm. then eventually get to the other side of the country and it's a principle that came out of the Great by Choice research with Morton. but uh, I've always had a 20 mile march which is I measure my creative hours every day. Mm-hmm. I basically ask how many creative hours did I get and to me a creative hour is anything that contributes directly uh, to uh, something that might be a new idea or a new creation that could be replicable and uh, and so at the end of every day i put in a spreadsheet how many creative hours i got that day it can be 0 it could be 8 it could mm-hmm. usually somewhere you know in between but every 365 day cycle such as today uh to 365 days ago has to be above 1,000 hours. Hmm. So I actually rigorously hold myself to account that I have to get 1,000 creative hours every 365-day cycle for 50 years without (laughs) missing. And I manage my life and my time that way, so therefore I manage my commitments very carefully to leave lots of vessel time for creative time. The second is that uh, I find you know it 's always a combination of research. I love to read way outside my field mm-hmm. uh, I just finished uh, taking a course on Uh, the history of the Black Death in the 1300s. I mean, I don't know what that has to do with anything Mm -hmm. I'm studying, except it stimulates ideas. I love to read voraciously. Uh, I love conversation. You and I had a conversation before we began today about some people that we both admire, right? And what we learn from that. And and then the research itself. And a lot of it is you're always listening for something you're processing, you're processing, you're processing, and then something pops out of your mouth.
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And, and you go, wow, that's an interesting idea. And you, it's like you grab it before it disappears, and you write it down. And I keep on my, on my iPad, I have a little thing called Creative Insights. And any time something occurs to me, like I'll share with you one, I was doing a dialogue session with a group of folks from outside this country. I challenged them to work on their flywheel, and then we moved to challenging them to think about their own 20-mile march. And I had this insight that I hadn't had before. The best twenty-mile marches connect to the very top component of the flywheel. Huh. I didn't know that, and I, I mean, I, I, I even though I developed the concepts in that session, there was this flash of aha, <laughs> and now forever I have that understanding. Yeah.
0: Well, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Jim, but you are a bit of a freak. You realize that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> I am actually, and, and I, I uh, you know, it, it, but I'm, but I, I'm so curious that I kind of can't help but be. Yeah. And I so love sharing and teaching uh, the ideas that I can't help but be, and and I'm really, you know, I'm really a very fortunate person because I stumbled on these questions of what makes a great organization, a great company, a great enterprise tick. And they occupied me for 30 years. I'm moving on to new questions now, but, but uh, for my next 30 years, if I'm lucky enough health-wise to be granted uh, another 30 years, my, my role model in many ways was Peter Drucker and people like John Gardner, and they had a really long run. Uh, and I hope to be just as freaky for the next 30 uh, with also integrating in some other, you know, interesting artistic adventures and so forth. But I just I get up and I, I, I just love the journey.
0: Yeah, yeah. And a great story you have about Peter Drucker is that, you know, in his mid-60s, he had written a bunch of books, and you would think that was about it, but he wasn't even close to being done, correct?
1: Oh, my. So it, so this is—I uh, was really lucky because I got—Peter I, uh, was almost exactly 50 years older than me. I was born in 1958. He was mm-hmm. born in 1909. And I went down and visited him when I was 36, just at the time I was leaving uh, to— go off on my own to set up my own research path and to be an entrepreneurial professor. And, um, and I, I asked uh, Peter on that day, he was 86,
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, I said, uh, which of your 26 books are you most proud of? And he said, the next one. <laughs> and he wrote 10 more. Yeah. And I have, I'm literally looking at it right now, um, I have a picture of all of Peter's books based on the year that he uh, laid out sequentially uh, on the year that he wrote them. And it starts with the end of Economic Man and goes all the way to the end. Uh, and I, when I was asked to give the keynote for Drucker's uh, 100th centennial, he had died a few years earlier, but at, the, at, at Claremont at the Drucker Foundation, I went and I, I looked at the bookshelf and I asked, where was he age 65 on this shelf? And the answer was he was one-third of the way across the shelf at age 65. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: He had two-thirds of his life's writings left to go when he was 65 years old. And I have that picture, and I'm 61. And so I keep a little note to myself that's kind of around 25% that is, you are here.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, what an inspirational note to close on. Other than this, um, what are you going to do for the next 30 years? Um, what's got <laughs> you curious now, and what are you currently working on?
1: Well, so I'm I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm turning my attention to uh, larger questions. I feel that the 30 years of work on what makes great companies tick is I will always teach those ideas, what makes great enterprises and the social sectors tick through that. I'll always teach those ideas. But I think my core research on that is um, – coming to a close. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm now turning to the question of, I did a project on K-12, I'm not sure what I'm going to do exactly with that yet, but the big one is the question of self-renewal, inspired by John Gardner. And, uh, and I'm looking at that question about why some people do that really well over the long course of time, people like Peter, people like John and others. Um, but in the end, before I'm, I'm done, if I'm granted health-wise, I think I understand organizational renewal really well. Uh, What I'd really, in the end, love to have is a three-layered cake of a contribution. Individual self-renewal, organizational self-renewal, and societal renewal. Mm. And if I could, before I'm done, contribute insight on all three layers and how they interrelate, individual renewal, organizational renewal, and societal renewal,
0: Uh, I feel that I will have done perhaps something useful. Yeah, for sure. Well, listening to you, you certainly know you have that fire in the belly. Well, Jim Collins, entrepreneurial professor and author of Good to Great and The Social Sectors, as well as Turning the Flywheel, among other books, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. If people are interested in learning more about some of these concepts, tell us about your website and what visitors, visitors are going to find there.
1: So it's jimcollins.com, and everything there is freely available for everyone. It's all built around the concepts. I think of it as kind of cyber office hours where (laughs) where you can come and hang out with the entrepreneurial professor and
0: learn. Well, Jim, uh, thanks for being here. It was a real uh, pleasure and privilege to have you on the program.
1: Thank you. I've really enjoyed it.
0: And that is this week's show. Next week, we'll be discussing the challenges that face Chicago, especially the violence that plagued that city, with the leaders of two organizations that are tackling this issue head-on. Helene Gale, the President and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust, and former Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan, who is now serving as the Managing Director of Chicago Cred. Thanks for listening, have a great week, and do return next Sunday evening for the business of giving.
2: The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of the business of giving.